0: Welcome to the Upper Room Sermon of the Week. For more information, go to urfellowship.com. If you have your Bibles with you, you can go to Luke 9. We'll get there in a moment. It's good to see you all. If you're visiting with us, I know that can be a hard thing to do, to visit a church, so... uh, so that's you. You're welcome here. So we are in a series that we're calling Open Heaven because we feel that we are in a time of increased blessing right now. And that is, that's awesome. And we have seen blessings and healings and salvations during this time. And it, has been, it has been great. But here's the thing. Those blessings end with us. This is what Greg was talking about. If they end with us, they terminate on us, then we haven't experienced the full scope of an open heaven. We've missed the point. Uh, so today, I want to talk about generosity. All right? And right away, when you hear the word generosity, your first instinct is probably to hide your wallet, right? because you probably think, oh, we're going to talk about money. All right? I promise, I'm not taking another offering. We're not talking about money today, so you can relax. And yes, uh, a generous person is generous with their money, but it's possible to be technically generous with your money, but not be generous with the rest of your life, right? Not be generous in your heart, because there are different currencies of generosity. A currency is a medium of exchange, right? Money is a medium of exchanging value, but there are others too. Our point of the teaching today is generosity doesn't just mean money, but should be something so deep in us, it is completely pervasive in all parts of our lives. Because I'm sure that you've met people who are, you know, critical, people that take offense, people that hold grudges against people. They're ungenerous relationally, they're ungenerous emotionally, but maybe they're they're generous with their money. That shows that they aren't generous all the way down to the bottom, right? They aren't generous in their hearts, The currency in this economy of generosity that we're going to look at today is a very important one. It's a great way to give value to other people. We're talking about being generous with our time, with our talents, and with our gifts. In Isaiah 32, 8, it says, But a generous man devises generous things, and by generosity he shall stand. I love that word devises in there. A generous person plans and schemes ways to be generous. And I'm sure you, you've heard it before, but every believer should not just be um, a ministry consumer, right? coming to a church to get your needs met, but also a ministry provider. You're also here to serve. That's one of the things that is one of the most important points we can make. Um, so let's go to Luke 9.49, and maybe we can get a glimpse at what this generosity of life looks like. So uh, yeah, Luke 9.49... It says Master, said John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he's not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said. For whoever is not against you is for you. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem, and he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them, and they went to another village. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, Follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Um, and then we're at 10.1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, The harvest is plentiful but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. So what I like about this scripture, they, they get us deeper into the subject of how to develop this life of generosity. Where does it come from? A generosity that's so deep, it's pervasive in every area of your life. And what I want to do is move through it backwards, okay? We're going to start at the very bottom. We're going to take the last part first, the middle part second, the first part third, all right? Completely confusing, but that's what we're going to do, all right? So we're going to look first at um, 10, 1 through 2. It's about having a life of generosity. It says, The Lord appointed 72 others, sent them ahead two by two, ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. And he told them the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Okay, so earlier in the chapter, 9, 1 through 2, we didn't read that. But that is where Jesus sends out the 12 apostles. And he sends them out to do three things. To preach... To cast out demons and to heal the sick. So here in 10, 1 through 2, he sends out 72 disciples. If we go a little bit further down in the chapter, we see he sends out these 72 out to do the same three things. Preaching, casting out demons, and healing the sick. Preaching means to persuade the mind of truth. Casting out demons refers to liberating the soul from things that enslave it. Of course, curing the sick means, to attend, it means attending to the needs of those who are hurting physically. Persuade the mind of the truth of the gospel, liberate people from enslavement in their souls, and deal with hurting broken bodies. The same three things were given to the 72 as the 12 apostles. Why is that significant? Why did Jesus send out 72 disciples with this command? Uh, if you read Genesis 10, you'll find that it, it lists the generations of Noah. And all the nations of the earth at that time are listed there. It's called the table of nations. There are 72 nations there. Because there were 72 nations on the earth after the flood. The word 72 became a symbolic number. It meant completeness. It meant everyone. When Jesus Christ sends out the 12, the clergy, the apostles, the leaders, the professionals, he sends the clergy out to do three things. Then later he sends 72, which represents all Christians. The whole church to do, to do the same three things. He uses the word sent. You see it in verse 1. After the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them. right? In the Latin, that word is misio, to send is misio, the word from which we get our word mission. What's the point? The point is not just the clergy, not just the apostles, not just the professionals, but all Christians. Every believer is a man or woman on mission. Jesus Christ never calls you in to bless you and heal you and forgive you without sending you out into the world to spread the benefits he has given you. Never. He never calls you in without sending you out. I love Genesis 12 where God comes to Abraham. Father Abraham, he had many sons, right? I'm one of them, so are you. Let's just praise him. I'm sorry, I can't help it. Every time I get there, anyway, it'll be funny again in a few weeks from now, and I I know it's like funny, dumb, funny again eventually. But God comes to Abraham, this is a paraphrase. Let me just summarize what he does. He comes to Abraham and he says, Abraham, I'm gonna bless you, I'm gonna love you, I'm gonna prosper you, I'm gonna do all these things, wonderful these wonderful things through you and for you. Now get out. Get out of your homeland. Get out of your familiar territory. Where am I going? I'll tell you later. Just go. Right there, you see God never blesses you except to make you a blessing. He never calls you in without sending you out. What's interesting is when the Bible talks about the fact that every believer is supposed to be out in the world serving people. Some people do use their mind and their mouth. Some of us are called to do what I'm doing right now, which is to persuade people of the truth. But many others are there to embrace the suffering, to embrace the hurting bodies, to embrace the hurting soul, Just to love people who are suffering and in need. Ephesians Ephesians 2.10 says, Paul says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Workmanship is a word that actually means we are a work of art. God has crafted us, so you are a work of art. But notice why it says God crafted you. Because there are certain good works Certain things, certain ways of serving people only you can do. Everybody has different gifts, everybody has different talents, everybody has different abilities. Also, everybody has different experiences in life. Right? Do you know even the things that have gone wrong in your life, even the suffering, even the failures, make you uniquely able to minister? God never wastes suffering. There are certain hands out there only you can hold. There are certain demons in people's lives only you can cast out. There are certain ways of helping people only you can do because of who you are, because, of you, because you are God's workmanship. If you've been called in, you're called to be sent out. You know how amazing this is and what a contrast it is to what the world says? There's a guy named uh, Martin Heidegger who was a German philosopher talked about the fact that uh, a lot of Western civilization now believes that there's no God. Right? A lot of people say we don't believe in God. We're, we're not here for any particular reason. We're here by, by an accident. We just happen to be here. We, we're, were we created for a reason? No, we're just here by accident. Martin Heidegger uses a German word when he says people feel they've been just thrown into life. We've just been thrown in life. There's no purpose. We're just thrown out there. The German word he uses is, uh, it's a geworfenheit. Geworfenheit. Yes, thank you. It's a great word. Use that on somebody if you want. You know, you could say, how are you feeling today? Geworfenheit. It means thrown into. But the Bible says if you're a Christian, your life is marked by sentness. You're sent. You haven't been thrown into life by the forces of chance. You've been sent. In fact, even the, very, the, the things that have gone wrong in your life has crafted you to become the kind of person you are so there are certain people you can serve. So even these things that weren't accidental, there are certain ways of serving people around you only you can do. You're a work of art. And if you see yourself as not just a person who says, I come here to church to get my needs met, but I come here to get equipped to be serving the people around me in the church, serving the people in my networks of relationships, serving my neighborhood, if you see it that way, suddenly your life goes from one of thrownness to sentness. So there's the first point. A Christian is to be a, a, a person who lives a life of deep unselfishness. You're here to serve. In fact, when you talk about this, when the Bible says God has sent you out, you're on mission, if you say, you know, what's, what's that mean? A Christian is sent out. Out where? Here's the answer. Out of yourself, really. That's the essence of what it means to be a person on mission. Not that you necessarily go overseas or something like that, though that's good, that's great. But first of all, you have to be sent out of yourself. It's almost like Jesus is saying to you, if you're a Christian, look, I've dealt with a shame. I've dealt with a sense of inadequacy. I've given you love and beauty and purpose and mission. Now get out of yourself. There's, you know, stop being self-absorbed. There's no excuse for it now. Live for other people. Live for me. So that's, that's the first. A life of generosity. Second point. We can't give ourselves away to others unless we first give ourselves away to Christ. This middle section. This middle section is fascinating. It's three people who basically offer to follow Jesus. And instead of Jesus saying, do you want, you know, do you want to follow me? Great. I have a class. Could you come Tuesday night? He doesn't do that. In each case, he challenges them. It's really kind of startling, but he's making a point. So the first man says, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replies, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. So here's a guy who says, I want to follow you. And Jesus says to this guy, basically, listen, you're moving too fast, right? I don't even have a place to sleep. You haven't thought through what you're signing up for. Here's what he says. I'm not not the kind of Messiah who's going to save the world through winning elections or through winning battles. I'm going to save the world by being arrested, condemned, and dying. I'm going to be broken in body and heart. Do you want to follow a Messiah like that? It may entail loss. It may entail suffering. I think this foxes have holes and birds have nests means it probably will at least lower your standard of living. Are you ready for that? And he challenges him. Are you sure you're ready to really follow me? The next two are actually different. With the first guy, Jesus is saying, you're coming too fast, stop and think about it. With the next two, he actually says, you're coming too slow. Look, the second guy says, he said to another man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord. But first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, No one puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the service in the kingdom of God. So what's he saying here? We can look at these together because they're both the same issue. Family. You have to remember when you first see this, Jesus says, No, you can't go to your father's funeral. No, you can't go and say goodbye to your family. Follow me. Sounds pretty harsh, right? But let's... Let's look at the context. Knowing the context is always huge in Bible stories. This is a highly patriarchal society. In a patriarchal society, family means everything. Family honor means everything. Parental approval means everything. If they're happy with you, then you're okay. If they're not happy with you, you're shamed. That's a patriarchal society. Jesus is speaking to people in a patriarchal society and has the audacity to say, I understand that you want to follow me, but I'm not first in your life. Because notice, both of them do this. Lord, first, let me go bury my father. It's verse 59. Down in verse 50, uh, 61. I will follow you, Lord, but first, let me go back and say goodbye to my family. It's this word first. They're saying, yes, Jesus, but first This. Here's what they're saying. I'll follow you if you let me do this. I'll follow you, but first let me do that. I'll follow you as long as it pleases my family. They're saying, "If I, I'll follow you if. I'll follow you as long as. I'll follow you but first. What's on the other side of the first? What's on the other side of the if? What's on the other side of it, the as long as is the real non-negotiable? That's the real thing you're following. Jesus in that situation is just a means to an end. He says, no, that, that doesn't work. I cannot be the means to an end. I have to be first because of who I am. And when he says, by the way, no one puts their hands to the plow and looks, ba- and looks back as fit for the service in the kingdom of God, he's using a metaphor that they would have known that we probably don't necessarily know. But that is when you're plowing... You hitched your plow to an animal, and you only made a furrow at a time. The way you would plow the field was one furrow at a time. That meant you couldn't take your eye off off the field or off the plow. Because the furrows you were doing would not be lined up with the other furrow, and it would mess up the whole plan for all the plowing. Also, if there was a rock in the ground and you didn't see it, it could break your plow, which was a disaster for poor farmers when Jesus says, you know what it's like to plow? You never take your eye off the plow. You're completely focused. What Jesus is saying is, you must have a laser focus on me. The other image he used to get across the importance of putting him first in your life is where he says, let the dead bury their dead. You come with me. What does that mean? Jesus would would do this often. He would take something someone said, and he would use the same words, To express a spiritual reality. So the woman at the well, right, she's talking about literal water, and he's he starts talking about living water. This guy starts talking about dead people, and Jesus says, Let the dead bury their own. So he can't be talking about literally physically dead people. He's talking about spiritually dead people. To be spiritually dead means you're blind to spiritual realities means you're insensitive to them, like a dead person. Jesus is saying, if you think there's anything more important in life than me, if you say, well, I would like to have you in my life, but as long as this or that happens, there's anything more important to you than me, it takes a certain amount of spiritual deadness there. Let me say it this way. This is an illustration I've been wanting to use for a while, but it's a lot of numbers, so kind of follow me here. Do you know how big the universe really is? If you took, if you took the 92 million miles between the earth and the sun, okay, and you turned it into just a, the thickness of a sheet of paper, okay, do you know if that was the case, then the distance from the earth to the nearest star would be a stack of papers 70 feet high. Think of that. The distance from the Earth to the end of the Milky Way galaxy would be a stack of papers 310 miles high. So if you think of every sheet of paper as 92 million miles, the size of our galaxy would be a stack of papers 310 miles high. Now, if you think that's big, realize our galaxy, the Milky Way, is basically a speck of dust in the universe. There are hundreds of billions of galaxies in the universe. The universe is so big, the Milky Way is practically a speck of dust. So you have all that in your head? You can envision that? That's big, okay? So the Bible says Jesus holds it all together with the word of his power. With the fringes of his power. With his little pinky, basically. Is this the kind of person you ask into your life to be your assistant? Is this the kind of person you say, listen, I'd be very happy to have a relationship with you as long as you do these three things. No. It's all or nothing. It ha- he has to be first. That's why Romans 12.1 says, Make yourself a living sacrifice, which is your reasonable service. The reasonable thing to do when you see the grandness and the glory of God is to turn your whole being over to him point here is you can't give yourself away to other people like it says in uh, 10, 1 through 2 until you learned how to give yourself away to Him. And maybe you're saying, sure. I understand that we're supposed to serve people you we're supposed to reach out. We're not here just to be consumers. That is, that's hard enough. Alright? I felt guilty enough about that one. But, now you're telling me I have to be this radical fanatical kamikaze for Jesus person. Everything for Him and He has to be first. I'm not sure I can do that. Thankfully, there's a point three. If if there weren't a point three, we'd all be in big trouble trying to live up to points one and two. Yes, we can't give ourselves away to others unless we first give ourselves away to Christ. But oftentimes, we can't give ourselves away to Christ because we're afraid to. We're afraid he's going to hurt us. We're afraid he's going to disappoint us. We're afraid he isn't going to live up to his end of the bargain. So what will enable us to be truly generous toward others and toward Christ to really give ourselves away not only to others but Christ? You have to understand and grasp the generosity of grace. That's number three. Here's where it is. It's in this first part. There are actually two incidents here. Verse 49 says, Master said, John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he's not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is for you. And I'm not going to get into the whole subject of demon casting out, but people say, do you really believe in demons? Um, I, I do really believe in demons, by the way. But also all of us, until we make Christ the center of our lives, are spiritually enslaved to other things. So sex, money, comfort, these are spiritual type gods. A a kind of idol. A kind of demon in your life. And they'll drive you into the ground. So there's a lot of ways of understanding that. The point is, in the Bible, Jesus several times says, uh, you can't cast out demons except through prayer and trust in me. So anyone who's driving out demons in Jesus' name, they believe in Jesus and are clearly doing something good and right. So why does John want to shut them down? He says, we tried to stop them because, what, what he literally says is, because he's not following us. In other words, he's doing good things, he believes in Jesus, he's doing all these good things, but he's not one of us. We need to get control of that. And Jesus says, stop it. Do not stop him, you stop it. For whoever is not against you is for you. Here we see a lack of generosity of spirit in the Apostles. They're not generous toward this guy. They're not giving him the benefit of the doubt. They want to control him. They're jealous. He's not one of us. And Jesus comes along and says, be generous. Okay, he's not with you, all right, but he's still for you. In a time in which we've never had a country that is more divided and angrier at one another and all that sort of thing, here's what generosity looks like to Jesus. The disciples go, you're not in our party, you're not one of us, you're not in our denomination, we want to shut you down, we want to control you. Jesus says, be generous. Okay, go to verse 51. It says, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a, a Samaritan village to get things ready for him, but the people there did not welcome him. So he's on the road, and they expect to go into the Samaritan village to stay there. Hospitality was this very important thing in those days. But apparently, this Samaritan village had heard of Jesus. They know what he's up to, and for reasons we're not told, they don't like what he's doing, and tell him, you can't stay here. The disciples are furious. So what do they do? Verse 54 says, When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? Although that would be awesome. Their motives are bad. But they actually have some biblical precedent. They're probably thinking of Elijah. Because 2 Kings 1, Elijah, who's a prophet, is not in a good relationship with Ahab, the king of Israel. The king of Israel sends 50 soldiers to come and arrest Elijah. Elijah's sitting at the top of the hill. Soldiers come to the bottom. And the commander calls up and says, Man of God... Come down, because we're going to arrest you. Elijah says, If I am a man of God, may fire come down from heaven and destroy you. Down comes the fire from God and destroys him. So Ahab sends another troop of 50 soldiers. These guys probably aren't quite as enthusiastic about their job. They go to the foot of the hill. They look up. The commander says, Man of God, come down. We're going to arrest you. Elijah again says, If I'm a man of God, may fire come down and destroy you. When you know it, It happens again. They're destroyed. I'm sure the apostles knew that passage. They read that passage. When they read that, they probably went, yeah, that's the God I believe in. He destroys the wicked. He destroys the evil. Fire from heaven. Yeah. If the rejection of the prophet Elijah warranted the fire of God coming down and destroying people, wouldn't it be true that the rejection of Jesus would warrant that kind of fire even more? Wouldn't wouldn't it really deserve even greater judgment? Seems logical. They turn around and say, Lord, do you want us to call fire down upon them? What does what does it say? Jesus doesn't just say no, he rebukes them. They say, Do you want us to call fire down on these awful people? And Jesus looks at them and says, Who do you think you are? You guys need to get over yourself. Why the difference between Jesus and the disciples? The disciples are partisan. They want to call fire down on everybody that isn't like them. Everybody's terrible but us. Why can Jesus forgive the Samaritans? I mean, what they did was wrong, period. Here's the answer. Jesus did come to bring the fire of God. He says so a little bit later in Luke 12, 49 through 50. He says, I've come to set the world on fire, and I wish it were already burning I have a terrible baptism of suffering ahead of me, and, and I am under a heavy burden until it is accomplished. That's an amazing statement. And the reason why it's amazing is that in the, in the, way, Hebrew of, the way of Hebrew literature, one of the rules, one of the ways in which they're, they made their points was through restatement and repetition. It was very typical for two statements to be side by side. Each one was a restatement of the other. In other words, things weren't said once, they were said twice. And the second time was a restatement of the first time for emphasis. So when he says, I have come to bring the fire of God, and oh, how I wish it were kindled, what's that mean? I don't know. Except the second time, he says, I have come to endure a baptism, and oh, I am under a heavy burden until it is accomplished. He had already been baptized with water, so what baptism is he waiting for? What baptism is crushing him, even waiting for it? The answer is, the second sentence is a restatement. Of the first you know what he's talking about you know what he's baptized with when the soldiers really came for Jesus like Elijah they came to arrest him remember in the garden of gethsemane what did he do when he had to fight and one of them had his ear cut off he healed his ear when the soldiers were pounding nails through his hands into the cross he said father forgive them it's the exact opposite of Elijah why because Jesus came not to bring judgment, but to bear judgment. He took the fire of the judgment on sin. So when you believe in him, the only fire you get is the fire of the Holy Spirit. The fire of love and power. And if you hear the call, please give yourself to Christ. Please give yourself away wholly and totally. And maybe you say, I can't. I'd like to. Maybe, it, maybe it's right, but I can't. If you just try to tell yourself, I need to be a servant, I need to be unselfish, I need to give myself away to others, I need to give myself away to Jesus, it won't work. Your heart will just hold on tighter. But if you see him giving himself away for you, that, that's how, that transforms you. How can you see someone who gave himself completely for you without giving yourself completely to him? You can't. And when you give yourself away to him, he, he fills you. When you give yourself away to him, you get embraced and loved and given your true self and your true identity and true mission. And the more you see the costliness of his grace and the power of what he did and also how he really heals you and fills you with his love, it enables you to give yourself away. It frees you. There's nothing more burdensome than having to live for yourself make all your own calls, make all your own decisions, also actually have to work up your own self-esteem. When you have his love, it takes that burden off. You are free, truly free. To see him giving his life away to you enables you to give yourself away to him and enables you to give yourself away to other people. Being a disciple is a radical thing. There's nothing more subversive than Jesus saying in a patriarchal society, I want you to put put me ahead of your family. That's amazingly subversive. Today he would be saying to you and me, I have to be ahead of money. I have to be ahead of power. I have to be ahead of sexual fulfillment. You have to put me first. That's radical. That's intense. But on the other hand, Jesus is saying, my followers never call down fire on people. Just turn on your computer or TV. There's nothing but people calling fire down on everybody else. Jesus says, my disciples are not going to be like that. So, we, so we're not afraid to follow him because he knows what, you, what we need. He's a wise, gentle counselor. Do you notice how with the first guy he says, slow down and think about it? With the other two guys, he says, speed up and get going. You notice how with Martha, Martha says, Lord, my brother's dead. And Jesus says, I'm the way, the resurrection, and the life. Mary comes along and says, Lord, my brother's dead. And Jesus just weeps. Jesus knows when you need a push, and he knows when you need an arm around the shoulder. He knows when you need pushed, and he knows when you need to just be supported Don't be afraid to give yourself to Him. Follow Him. Let's let's pray. Thank you, Father, for granting to us this great promise, but also this great challenge. We thank you that you have filled us with your love and power so we can empty ourselves and give ourselves to others. We ask that you would teach us, first of all, and primarily how to be your disciples. Change us in all the ways we have just seen your word says we can change and comfort us in all the ways the word says you will comfort us. So we can be ministers in this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The ministry team will be up here. If you'd like prayer, if you'd like to respond to the sermon, if you'd like blessing, come Come forward and get prayed for. Amen.